please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. You can find this passage on page 1325 in the Pew Bible. Uh, congregation has been working through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're now to the near to the end here. And we're, we've been looking at this chapter 15, um, which is quite a lengthy chapter of the last several weeks, and now we've come to the last portion of it, verses 50 to 58. Uh, Just for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young church. It was a young church with a lot of energy and enthusiasm, but also a lot of confusion. And they had found themselves um, in in situations where they had conflict within the church and uh, were struggling with different forms of immorality. And so as Paul has addressed a number of these issues in the church, he comes here in chapter 15 to address... Uh, a confusion they have about the final state, the, the eternal life that's been promised to God's people. And so uh, Paul's been arguing here for the reality of a physical bodily resurrection, that because Jesus Christ rose in his body, this is true for all of his people. And so Paul's bringing this uh, argument to a conclusion here, uh, talking about this final victory over death. So let's give attention now to God's Word, starting in verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound... And the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And there will end the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us as we consider it together this morning. Well, certainly our lives have been dominated over the last two years by a global pandemic. And in the midst of this, it's very easy to forget that certain parts of the world have been dealing with all kinds of health crises uh, over the, 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 uh, the last decades. And in fact, if you look in Africa, uh, they're dealing with regular uh, problems with HIV, tuberculosis, malaria, Uh, that are killing hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people a year. And one of the diseases uh, that strikes uh, the African continent with some regularity is a disease called Ebola, with a very high lethality rate and a very violent way of killing people. And this is a disease that's actually fairly new. We, We only know it from the 1970s onward. And when the first outbreak of Ebola happened in what was then called Zaire, which is now part of the the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, 
Uh, it struck a mission hospital. And so this was where Western missionaries were running a hospital. And uh, a person that was ill with Ebola showed up there and through a contaminated needle, uh, the virus began to spread. And uh, when the first of these missionaries died, an absolute panic ensued because the Africans realized, well, if the white people can't keep themselves safe from this disease, there's no way they can help us. And so everybody fled. And interviews with some of those missionaries are really fascinating because one of the missionaries uh, is recorded as saying, uh, when one of the priests and one of, one of the other uh, workers there died, uh, this woman said, we all realized that death was hanging over our heads and we were there as servants of Christ. We believed what the Bible said, that we didn't need to be afraid of death, but we realized we were afraid of death. And that was a real revelation for this woman to say we were terrified of dying. And that wasn't supposed to be the case. And I think if we're honest, we can resonate with what this woman says. That in some sense, we are all afraid of death. Now, some of us are afraid of the unknown that happens after we die. Some of us are afraid of uh, separation from loved ones. Some of us are afraid of, of uh, things left undone that we had hoped to do in our lives. Some of us are afraid of the process. Uh, may, maybe not so afraid of, be, of, of being dead, but the process of getting there is what, is what terrifies me. And so there's a lot of things to be afraid of. In fact, the people who say they're not afraid of death are usually people who just force themselves to never think about it, won't allow themselves to think about it, or who have very erroneous views of what the Bible says happens to us after death. And so Paul here is confronting a congregation that's confused about what happens after we die. And they had envisioned some kind of spiritual uh, life that was sort of like angels without bodies for eternity. And, and Paul, in, in this chapter, is trying to argue with them, if you don't get your body back, restored, then death has won and the end. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that death is going to be completely defeated and that you're not just going to live on in some kind of ethereal uh, life without a body, but that your body is going to be restored as well. And so as this chapter comes to what one commentator calls a magnificent Crescendo, Paul is pressing home to us the importance of this doctrine that because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and defeated death completely, his people also will have that victory that death is going to be swallowed up in victory and life. And this actually makes a difference to how you live your life now. That you can labor, Paul says, in hope and in confidence because of your certainty about what Christ is doing. And so that's the main point of this message this morning. If you look in your outline, you can see it's there. You can labor confidently in this life because Jesus removes the sting of death and assures you that, you, that all your work for Him will be abundantly rewarded. 
And children, if you'd like to draw a picture for me this morning, uh, you might try to draw a picture of uh, what what is going to look like uh, when Jesus returns. That that's what this is about. Uh, what's going to happen to God's people? Or if that's too complicated for you, draw a picture of a butterfly and listen, and I will explain how that fits in. Well, we'll start working our way through this passage. The first thing I want you to notice is that you and I are not fit for eternal life in our present state. We're not fit for it. Um, He says this in verse 50. Now I say this, uh, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit Incorruption. Now, if you uh, if you remember what we looked at in the last passage, was they were arguing, Paul, this is absurd. This idea that dead bodies come back to life, it, 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 we don't think it's possible. But even if it was possible, it's not desirable. Who would even want that to happen? And Paul used an analogy where he said, Well, it's it's like a seed going into the ground. You know, the seed is small, insignificant, dried up, doesn't look like it can do anything, and yet it goes into the ground and it's transformed. It comes out as a beautiful, thriving, living plant. And so Paul was there trying to remind them that God is able to transform His people in such a a, a powerful way. And now in verse 50, he's saying, this transformation has to happen for any person who wants to be with God for eternity. Flesh and blood cannot, it is not possible for our normal bodies to inherit the kingdom of God. Now I think most of us, if we're familiar with the gospel, will say, well we understand, right, because we're sinners, that separates us from God. And so we need to be uh, completely renovated morally in order to be in God's presence. And yes, these things are true, but remember... Paul is here talking about our physical bodies. And he's saying, your physical body, the one you have right now, is not suited for an eternal existence. Partly this goes back to the idea that God has promised to renovate this whole created universe. That heaven, the eternal state, is in a physical universe. I put another couple of verses in the uh, the bulletin there for you. Uh, 2 Peter 3 Verses 10 and 13, where there, um, Peter writes, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, that's when Jesus returns, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So here, the end of the world is pictured as a burning. But you should not think of destruction. You should think of refining. That there's a refining that's going to happen. And as it says here, there is a new heaven and a new earth that's going to be completely renewed and restored. In other places in Scripture, it talks about this like changing clothing, putting on a fresh set of garments, the way the world is going to be redone. And we don't know all that that means, but we do understand that Paul is saying here, your body as it's currently constituted can't live, cannot live in that eternal world that God is going to remake. Now, I know some of you children, you you love to go swim. And I've heard your parents say, maybe sometimes just to get everybody away for fun, you'll go to the pool at the Y or something like that, or even to a hotel. But children, as much as you like to swim, you cannot live in water. 
I know you, sometimes you think that might be all right. What happens to your skin uh, after you've been in the pool for just a couple of hours, right? It's, it's all wrinkly. And what's happening is your body is dehydrating. Uh, you lose water out of your body while you're in water. And, and eventually you get cold, even in a heated pool, because your body's losing its thermal energy. So we understand we can be in water. We, we're not made. Our bodies are not made to live in water. Your bodies aren't made to live at the top of a mountain, right? Where the air is very thin and it's very cold. There are some plants that can live there. There are some rodents that can live there maybe, but you and I aren't made to live there. And Paul is saying your body, as it's built right now, cannot live in this eternal world. And I think this isn't just an impact of the fall. We understand our bodies are corrupted by sin. I don't think Adam's body was prepared to live in the eternal world. I'm speculating a little bit here. But I think God put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them a test. Are you going to obey me or not? And if they had passed the test and they had obeyed him, then they would have been allowed to eat of the tree of life and live forever. There was something more for Adam and Eve that they didn't quite experience because they disobeyed God. God banished them from the garden. You can't eat from the tree of life. So there's some fundamental change that's needed in our lives. Our bodies aren't made for eternity. Maybe some of you saw that the secretary who served uh, Oscar Schindler of, of Schindler's List fame The woman who wrote the list uh, died last week at 107 years old. That's that's old. Uh, That's impressive. That's good genes there. But um, compared to what God has in store, that is just a blink of an eye. And this is what God's saying. You have to be remade. Your body has to be remade if it's going to be fit for an eternal universe, what God is doing. But secondly, we see in this passage that when Jesus comes again, He will radically transform all of His people, both the living and the dead. And we see this in verses 51 and following. And it seems like here Paul's anticipating maybe uh, an objection someone might make after he said in the previous passage... Uh, you know, you have to die and then life, this new uh, life comes out of death. And, and it seems like some are saying, well, what about the people who are still alive when Jesus comes again, when all of this happens? There are going to be people who haven't died yet. What happens to them if you have to be changed? And so Paul says uh, in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. So in the Bible, a mystery is something that's uh, obscure. It's been hidden, but it's now revealed. This is this mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's his euphemism for death. Not every person will die. There will be believers on the earth when Jesus comes again. But we all shall be changed. Everyone is going to need to be changed, whether those people who have already died or those people who are still alive. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. That's amazing. 
in an instant. And it uses the word from which we get the English word Adam, which to them meant something that was indivisible. There was no smaller time period. The fastest imaginable time this change is going to happen. He, sa- he says it will uh, accompany the last trumpet. And throughout the Bible, a sound of a trumpet is often associated with the arrival of God. I put another passage in the outline that's parallel to this from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And you see here where Paul writes, and here actually in, in the Thessalonian church, the, uh, the issue was what happens to the people who've already died. He's trying to, uh, to comfort them, but he's talking about these same events. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now that passage merits its own sermon. We don't have time for that, but just notice the trumpet announces the arrival of Jesus. And what happens? Those who have already died, their bodies are reconstituted. Their, their, their souls are reunited with their renewed bodies. They come back to life. And those who are already are still alive, it says they are changed also. They're, this says they're caught up in the clouds to greet the Lord. And I think the picture there is the conquering king is coming back. And so we, we are caught up with Jesus as he comes. And then we come back to this renewed earth or this renewed universe and we live here forever with the Lord. Now, what is this going to look like? I I wish I could tell you more. We don't know what it's going to look like, but we do know it's going to be incredible. He says there at the end of uh, of, of verse 52, the beginning of 53, uh, that the dead will be raised incorruptible, we will be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. And that's the nature of this change. Your, Your body... It is going to be renewed in such a way so that it, it not only will not decay, it cannot decay. It, it, will, it will be incapable of weakness and decay. And, and it says, you know, the body we have now, which is mortal and which mortality hangs over us, it says not only is your body going to be changed so that it won't die, your body is going to be changed in such a way that you cannot die that it is going to be incapable of death. And somehow this is going to happen in an instant. And and although we're not sure how this looks, maybe we get a little hint from what the disciples saw of Jesus on the mountain. I put this Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2 in your outline. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And it was, a, it was an overpowering vision and Christ was transfigured before them. And children, that word transfigured is the word from which we get the word metamorphosis. And so I, I mentioned the butterfly, right? What happens? The butterfly is a caterpillar 
that climbs up on a leaf and builds this cocoon. And uh, you really wouldn't want to see what was going on inside that cocoon because the whole thing turns to liquid almost. It, it liquefies. And then new cells start to grow out of these little pockets of cells. And it's totally transformed into a beautiful butterfly. Something that crawls around and eats leaves now can fly and loves to go uh, visit the flowers. It's a beautiful picture of what God is going to do for us. Now, I, I risk here uh, um, treading into difficult waters, but I sort of imagine what happens in the cartoon version of Beauty and the Beast at the end. This is why the warning, right? Um, not the live action one, the, the cartoon one. But at the end of this, when, when, when the beast uh, sort of just gets caught up in a whirlwind, like a little tornado, and kind of rises up in the air, and as he's spinning around, he turns into this uh, handsome prince. And, and I'm speculating here, but this is what I think. Something like this is what's being suggested, that our bodies, our physical bodies, will be changed in such a dramatic way, and it will happen radically and quickly in a blink of an eye. And I think whatever it looks like, you, you need to embrace that as a wonderful, wonderful vision. That your body now, which is afflicted with fatigue and soreness and weakness of all kinds, will, will be completely free from that. And, uh, and, and the fear that we have that hangs over us of being sick or being injured or losing our mental faculties, all that is taken away from us. And even if we don't understand it, the idea of it should captivate our imaginations and give us great gratitude and hope. Because when Jesus comes again, whether you're alive or not, he's going to completely transform your body. Thirdly, with this transformation, Jesus will completely overwhelm death with life and victory. So in verse 54 He says, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That was the quotation from Isaiah 25, verse 8, that we read earlier in the service. Death swallowed up in victory. Now now realize, in the previous part of this chapter, he is called death the, the last enemy. And, and that, is what enem- that is what death is. Death seems to have swallowed us up. Everyone in here knows that death is an enemy. You have lost loved ones to death. You, death laughs in our face. Death says, I've won. I've taken your loved one from you. I've swallowed you up. And you're living in my world. And you're all terrified of me. That's what death is saying as it robs us of joy and causes fear and sorrow. And not only that, but death also threatens to separate you from your body. That's one of the things that happens. Soul and spirit, uh, or a spirit is ripped away from body. But Paul here is reminding us that in the victory of Christ, death is actually the thing that is swallowed and completely eliminated. I give another uh, reference to this, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4. For we who are in this tent, that is in this body, grown, being burdened, 
not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. That means that not that we don't we want to get rid of our body, but we want a better body that mortality may be swallowed up by life. This is what Paul is talking about. The picture is uh, is a is a large predator coming uh, and swallowing the prey whole, engulfing it so that there's nothing left. There's no vestige of it left behind. As commentators Kiampa and Rosner say, not only will the ultimate enemy death be destroyed, but every trace of its causes and consequences, every one of its allies and partners will be removed. Everything that we associate with death, gone. Completely taken away. In, in my ministry here, I've participated in over 20 different funerals. And, and that goes from a, a girl who died after a few hours uh, to people who've died in their 90s. And, and what I can say is no matter what the circumstances are, it's always devastating. It, it's always loss and sorrow. And even a person who suffered and, and dies, we're, we're still mourning that that person had to suffer, uh, even if they may be relieved from that suffering. But what this passage is telling you is that is temporary. That is, a, that is something for this world. But God is building a world in which there will be no funerals. Now, I realize some people had to postpone the funerals because of the pandemic. And, and, and you're seeing right now all these memorial services are popping up, making, uh, making up for what happened before. This isn't a promise that there'll be no more funerals because someone's going to stop you from having a funeral. This is because there's no more deaths. There's no one dying. There's no loss like that at all. And this is telling us that every vestige of death is gone. You won't need to fear this for your loved ones, for your children. It's a world without wars and murders and pandemics and cancer. And, and, and this is what we come to celebrate every Sunday. The fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead victorious over the grave. That all who are in Him, amen, all of us who are here are celebrating that not just today, but every day. And every Lord's Day to recognize Jesus has given us the victory. Instead of this, this cloud hanging over us of death, death swallowed up in victory. Christ promises death will be completely overwhelmed by life and by victory. And so fourthly, recognize that even now Jesus has removed the sting of death. So you do not need to fear. Verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Now Paul here is using the language of the Old Testament prophets here to actually taunt death. That's that's what he's doing here. He's mocking death. It's something very profound that he's saying. That if we know Jesus Christ, if we have put our faith in Christ, Christ's victory is our victory, and we can say with Him, Oh, death, where is your sting? And and I think that's a fascinating challenge for us, because we do know death stings. Death has a sting. But what He's saying is that Christ has taken the sting away. Verse 56, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Why is it that death stings so much? Because it's the result of sin. 
And Jesus Christ has taken away the penalty of sin. He enables us to live without this fear of death. Commentator Gordon Fee says, Victory in the present begins when one can with Paul sing the taunt of death even now in the light of Christ's resurrection, knowing that death's doom is already not yet. What does that mean? It means that death is defeated. Christ defeated death when He rose again from the grave. But the final swallowing up of death will happen when Jesus comes again. But Christ has taken the sting out of death. Anthony Thistleton says, Death has been transformed into a gateway to the nearer presence of God. Or as Paul says it in Philippians 1, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He understands Christ has transformed what death means. It was interesting. One of the commentators wanted to compare the death of Christ with the death of Socrates. So I, I now you philosophers would know that this is a this is like a cottage industry, uh, comparing the death of Socrates to the death of Jesus. Socrates uh, died about four, in the 400 BC. A philosopher who was uh, sentenced to death, and many people think it was kind of a kangaroo trial, and so he had to drink hemlock and and die. Uh, but there's this sense in which he he was very stoic in his death. He, he faced death without fear. His, his uh, followers offered to help him escape, and he declined. And he faced death with this great bravery, great calmness. And in contrast, you know, Jesus uh, was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was. He was sweating drops of blood. He was in agony, asking the Lord that the cup would pass from him. Uh, and, and so, you know, why the difference? Why, why does Socrates face death the way he does? And Jesus seems to be in great anguish over his death. Well, part of the reason, I mean, the main explanation is Socrates didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't understand what was awaiting him as someone who's going to have to face the judgment of God. So it's possible to be to delude yourself, to be completely confused, and therefore to come to some sort of uh, level of calm, what's amazing about the Lord Jesus is that He knew, He knew better than any of us know what He he was facing. That that Jesus was going to be betrayed, beaten, spit on, and, and face what is, some think, the most painful form of death ever invented. And He was going to suffer terribly, publicly humiliated in front of all of his opponents. And that, is, that wasn't even the worst part of what he was facing because the worst part of what he was facing is the judgment of God. God put the sin of all Christ's people on the Lord and punished Jesus for his people. And that's why Jesus was sweating blood, asking that the cup pass from him. Jesus went into it with his eyes wide open. But when he did that, he took the sting. The sting of death is sin. He took the sting for all of his people. And the Bible says every one of us is going to have to stand before God at some time. And either you're going to feel the sting yourself, or you rest in Christ who took the sting for you. 
And if you're in Christ, see why you don't need to fear death. One of the commentators said, death is like the starter's pistol for the Christian. Starting the race of eternal life. Paul here has called it sleep. Sleep in Jesus. And in a sense, in Christ, coming through death is going to be like waking up from a nap and being in the presence of the Lord, waiting with God's people till Christ comes again and gives us our renewed bodies back. And I don't know how time works. That may also seem just like that. Nobody knows how time works in heaven. But it will seem short when Christ comes again to give us our bodies back. And this is so important for you to grasp this. Christ has taken the sting of death. You do not need to fear death. Paul here is mocking death. And then finally, Paul encourages you to confidently labor now, knowing that Jesus will abundantly reward your work. Verse 58, Therefore, in light of all these things, therefore, my beloved brethren, that's amazing. They are his beloved brethren. These people, with all their problems and hang-ups, and they've turned on Paul himself at times, he still calls them his beloved brethren. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. And what he's saying there is, you know what I've taught you about the resurrection. Stand fast in this truth. They were being swayed by Greek ideas and their culture and what the culture said. Be steadfast and immovable. Hold on to the truth that you know. Now some of us might think, well, does that mean we're, we're very static, we're very stationary? No, because the next thing he says is always abounding in the work of the Lord. So we cling to His truths, but we keep working. We keep serving. And I think the idea there is work in the Lord is anything we do for the sake of the Lord. So that, that could be ministry. That could be service in the church. It could be raising your children. It could be caring for your aging parents. It could be working hard at your studies. It could be praying for people. It could be singing and playing instruments. Uh, for the benefit of all who were here last night. There, there are many ways to be working for the Lord, doing the things you are doing intentionally for the glory of the Lord. But the point he's saying here is that you will be abundantly rewarded. Now, you, he says at the end of that, your labor is not in vain in the war. And, and the word labor there is, it could be translated weary toil, exhausting work. It's hard work sometimes working for the Lord, trying to serve the Lord in whatever we're doing. But, but what he's saying is your labor is not going to be in vain. Now that is a, that's, a, that's a form of figure of speech in which you understate a negative in order to emphasize a positive. So for example, um, uh, your, your wife cooks a very delicious dish how was that? That was not bad at all. Right Now, um, that's not meant to be faint praise. That is a way, by uh, understating a negative, you're actually saying, that was great, that was fantastic. That's what he's doing here when he says, your labor is not in vain. 
What he's really trying to say there is your labor will be abundantly rewarded. Your labor will be abundantly rewarded. Anything you do for the Lord in this life is going to somehow go with you into the next life. I don't know how that works. But this is one of the brilliant things about the faith because it's you. You are still the one that's going from this life to the next life. It's you. You're transformed. You're very different. You cannot die or get tired or or fall apart. But it's still you. And the things that you have done in this life are going to go with you into the next life. And this should give us tremendous tremendous confidence in what we're doing right now. R.C. Sproul and his uh, ministry uh, called, uh, I think his radio broadcast, Right Now Counts Forever. This is the idea. This is what Paul's saying. Therefore, because this is going to happen in the future, work faithfully now. You will be rewarded. I don't know what that means. But whatever you could want, the Lord Jesus is going to provide it for you. Now from a human standpoint, my family is in this denomination because God used a man named Jerry O'Neill about 31 years ago. He was the pastor of an RP church in Columbus to minister to us. And uh, Jerry, after he left the ministry, the pastorate in Columbus, went to the denominational seminary in Pittsburgh, uh, where he served until 2018, so 24 years. And Jerry was recently diagnosed with a progressive type of aphasia, which is where you lose the ability to speak. And um, I thought he very bravely uh, spoke to our general assembly last summer just to you know very slow very deliberate to try to explain what was happening to him but here's a man is gradually being shut in what's he doing with his life he's continued to try to help the seminary he's retired now but to continue to try to support the work of the seminary he and his wife Anne are raising a couple of their granddaughters Uh, because one of their sons has had some struggles. So they're parenting young children, and they're just getting up every day serving the Lord. And, And this is what happens not when we have Socrates' view of the end, some kind of false ideas about what's going to happen, but what happens when we have Jesus' view, when we understand that Christ has defeated death for us. He's going to transform us. This is a tremendous encouragement to labor faithfully for the Lord now, recognizing He's taken the sting of death out of it. You can trust His Word. Jesus is the only person to come back from the dead in a resurrected body. And He's telling you this is true. He's telling you you can labor confidently in this life because He's taken the sting out of death and that He will abundantly reward you for all that you do for Him as you seek to serve. Let's pray and we'll give Him thanks. Heavenly Father, we confess that there's a lot in this passage we don't fully understand in terms of what it will all look like, but 
we pray that you would help us to embrace and believe what, what is clear here, which is that if we put our faith in Christ, you have promised, you've taken the sting out of death for us. You've taken away the punishment of our sins. And you've promised that you're going to completely swallow up death and renew our bodies in such a way that we will be fit for an eternal life in a physical universe serving you. Lord, it's really too wonderful for us to to fully understand, and yet we rejoice in this promise. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to remember these truths, that they would would affect the way we live our lives every day. This, This reminder that what we're doing now does matter. And we pray you'd help us to be diligent in whatever you've called us to do, to do it for the Lord, knowing that these things will follow us into the next life and will be a great source of joy and blessing to us. Lord, I pray for any among us here who's afraid of death. I pray that you would give us the comfort from knowing Christ, that we don't need to be afraid of death. And I pray for any among us who don't yet know the Lord Jesus, who shouldn't have confidence when thinking about death. Don't give us false confidence, Lord. Don't let us delude ourselves and believe an illusion that everything just always works out all right. Lord, help us to see what you say here. You are the one. You are the only way we can be saved from being swallowed up by death. We pray, Lord God, that we would put our faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, how we thank you for his mercy, and we pray that we would live in his victory, that death will be swallowed up by life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's sing our praise now back to the Lord. We're again, we're working out of this red psalm book. Psalm 118, Selection C. I shall not die, but live and tell Jehovah's power to save. The Lord has sorely chastened me, but spared me from the grave. It's a wonderful psalm of life and salvation in the Lord. And it ends on this note of praise. Thou art my God, I'll give thee thanks. My God, I'll worship thee. I thank, oh, thank the Lord for he is good. His grace will endless be. Let's stand and sing our praise to the Lord.